Chatbots are useful for developing well-defined applications, such as first contact customer support, sales, and troubleshooting. But the potential for chatbots is so much greater. Over the last five years, there have been numerous platforms that have arisen to allow for better, more streamlined chatbot creation. Dialogue software enables the creation of sophisticated chatbots. Parlay.ai is a dialogue platform built inside of Facebook. It allows for the development of dialogue models within Facebook. These chatbots can remember information from session to session and continually learn from user input. Steven Roller is an engineer who helped build Parlay.ai, and he joins the show to discuss the history of chatbot applications and what the Facebook team is trying to accomplish with the development of Parlay. We are looking for writers and researchers to help with Software Engineering Daily. If you are interested, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'm also looking for investments, infrastructure companies to invest in. If you're building an infrastructure or developer tooling company, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Steven Roller, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You work on dialogue research at Facebook. Dialogue research, I think of as a better way of describing chatbots. So I may refer to chatbots and dialogue research interchangeably during this episode. Why are chatbots useful? I think that's a, a longstanding dream in, in the field of artificial intelligence and computer science, right? We've, we've always had the dream of what if I could just talk to my computer like I, like I talk to other people and, and converse with them and they would know, you know, what are my intentions? Why am I asking them this? What can they, they do to make my life better or help me along? And, you know, programming is fun. I, I love programming, but, you know, it'd be nice to, to just communicate with, with computers as well. And what about you personally? Why are you personally interested in chatbots? Why have you pursued this line of work of of all the different kinds of computer science research you could be doing? Yeah, you know, I sort of stumbled into this area. I joined FAIR after my PhD, where I did work in natural language processing. But my my work, my background work was like a little bit more linguistically oriented, focused on like the meanings of words, uh, a little bit more like what can computers teach us about language rather than how do we teach computers to understand language? And so, you know, when I joined FAIR, I, w- I was looking for, for projects to, to join, projects to collaborate on. So I, I gave Dialogue a shot and it turns out to be like a really great blend for me. A mix of novel research using, using the greatest and, and latest neural networking and, and machine learning techniques, as well as a, a bunch of interesting software engineering problems and opportunities for scaling, things like this. What are the domains in which conversational agents or chatbots are actually useful today? What are the places where they're useful versus the places where they're not so useful? Meaning like, what's the... What, what are the domains the we've actually conquered rather than the ones where we're stumbling? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously you're seeing a, a big wave of digital assistance. And I, I think that work is very exciting you know, a lot of what we focus on in, in dialogue in um, Parlay and the dialogue research at, at Facebook is on open domain chatbots, which are chatbots that can talk to you about like literally anything. And they're usually not focused on, you know, accomplishing a task for you, but rather like the goal is just to 
have a conversation with you about anything for as long as possible. So that's primarily where we work. And I think we've seen a lot of exciting advances over the past couple of years to where I think if you were to try some of these newer chatbots that have, have come out in the past year, you, you'd probably be really impressed with like, oh, wow, this was further than I expect. So I think what you see commercially is a lot of digital assistance, a lot of success in, in this, a lot of customer service type things. But what I'm really excited about when I think we've, you know, where things have made big strides and big strides in the past year is on these open domain chatbots that can actually talk to you about anything. Really? So as in, I can sit down with a chatbot today and say, hey, uh, what's the weather? And what is this spot on my skin? And recommend me a restaurant that looks appealing. I can do, I can ask all of these things of a chatbot today. Yeah, I would put those still in the category of like task-oriented chatbots where there's like some goal in mind, like, you know, answer my medical questions or tell me about the weather. What I really tend to work on and what I'm excited about is these social chatbots, right? So rather instead, you might ask, what's your favorite chess move? And it might go into into detail about like what's its favorite move and, and why that is or uh, what's your opinion of the fall of the Roman Empire? Let's let's debate that. So it's 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 less about you know what can you do for me and more about like let's enjoy the experience together. So can you give a few more descriptions of what a general purpose chatbot would be doing? Yeah, I, I think the end game here, or rather, like you know, where a true general purpose chatbot should do both of these things, right? Like if I ask it to to book me a calendar invite, then you know it should absolutely help me out with that. Where I focus my research is the sort of social part. And so I think you know we should see a, a mix of these. The bots that we've been developing really focus on um, having a few different behaviors that I don't think you tend to see in these sort of assistant um, type chatbots. They have persistent personas. So they'll have like personalities like you know, I love basketball or I have friends in, in the tech industry or something like this. And they can use this information and like consistently refer to it. You know, one of the other attributes that chatbots that we're working on developing and believe is really important is empathy, right? So a chatbot should understand, you know, as, as it's talking with you, what's your mental state like? How are you feeling and respond emotionally appropriately to that? So, you know, if you say something like my dog just ran away, you know, the, the chatbot should respond appropriately with something like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. But if you say something like I just got a promotion, then the chatbot should respond. Oh, that's great to hear. Congratulations. So responding emotionally appropriately is a, a really important characteristic of, a, of an open domain chatbot. And the last one is general knowledge. So, you know, I think when people talk to, to chatbots, they expect it to know things about the world. Some of that's encyclopedic, some of it's common, common sense reasoning. But, you know, if I ask what's the tallest building in America, you know, I, I sort of expect the bot to be able to have this, have this information available to it and be able to answer some questions like that, or even integrate this information in, in common and common dialogue, you know, just, oh, by the way, you know, what's, what's interesting or, you know, funny story about that sort of things. So consistent personality, 
empathy and a knowledge about the world. These are all things that I think are really important in the general domain, you know, general purpose chatbot. Empathy. You mentioned empathy. That's one of these things that requires some maintenance of context as to what is going on in the conversation. The chatbot needs to be able to acknowledge the perhaps sad state or happy state of the person it's uh, interlocuting with. Tell me about context. How does a chatbot retain and understand context in a conversation? Yeah, there's a few different ways that people go about it. So one of the more classic ways that people will do and approaches that people will take is they'll do something called like dialogue state tracking. So you'll have like some information about the dialogue, like, oh, the user is asking about a restaurant and they want it to be on Fifth Street, right? And you'll have this as some sort of state that you could do, say, like some sort of database query about um, and help them. Then like when you're doing dialogue research or, or building a chatbot, the task becomes a lot of like keeping track of that state and, and updating that state as the conversation goes on. The way that we often approach it is, is in a much more like raw neural network fashion. Uh, so we just like input all the, the dialogue context, all the history as one big string, and, you know, sort of saying person one said this, person two said that, person one said this. Person two said that, what do you say next? So we just treat these things as, as raw strings and have it, you know, input that and the model has to figure out, oh, what do we do with that? How do I respond? Who said what? All of this has to be learned from scratch. I'd like to get into a little bit more of a conversation about Facebook. So if you imagine Facebook in five years, what are the tasks that you envision dialogue models fulfilling for Facebook? Uh, that's an excellent question. I think, you know, there's all sorts of places where, where dialogue models can, can be helpful to our users. You know, we already have this product called Portal, which is a, a, a really excellent project, product that lets you make video calls with people. And one of the things you can, you can do is you can already say like, hey, Portal, you know, call mom. Um, and it starts dialing up mom. And that's super nice. You know, some of the other things might be, you know, as um, I might have an assistant on on Messenger that, that's helping me keep track of what's going what's going on with my friends, you know, I might say, "Hey, assistant, you know, what are the latest updates to my friends?" And it could it could uh, integrate that information and you know look through my my news feed for me and say, "Oh, hey, your friend Jim has a new photo. He got married, right? Oh, that'd be really cool, right?" So I think there's a lot of places for for dialogue to be part of Facebook products. You work on Parlay, which is spelled P-A-R-L-A-I. What is Parlay? Uh, Parlay is a platform for doing dialogue research. It's an open source platform. It's gotten over 100 contributors, and it's, it's got everything you would need to do to do dialogue research. So whether that's I want to collect a new data set or I want to train a new model um, and there's all these existing data sets out there, and I just want to use those without without trying anything. Or I want to create a new a new model, and I need to compare it to baselines, compare it to other other approaches that people have tried before. You know, I can just sort of try those those different models. It's got a model zoo. You know, oh, what are the pre-trained models that somebody else has released, and can can I leverage those when building my new chatbot? 
And then it's got everything you would need to also evaluate a, a chatbot. So, you know, once you have a chatbot, unlike a lot of areas in, in AI research, um, it's, it's not always clear how to evaluate it except to have people talk to it. So we've got all the tools that you need to uh, connect your chatbot up to Amazon Mechanical Turk and have people chat with it and you know, give evaluations or give, give performance ratings, things like this. Go a little bit deeper into the problems that Parlay solves for researchers that are using it. Yeah, I think there's um, quite a few different problems, especially in all those all those different spaces. You know, when you're when you're a researcher and you want to create a new data set that you know, let's say you want to create a new data set that teaches the model how to how to have empathy. You know, the thing you're going to do is have humans talk and exhibit empathy and annotate their 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 utterances with this sort of empathetic information. So we have tools so that you can like quickly spin up a user interface where you can have that chat, where you can annotate that information and sort of build what you need for that. So similarly with evaluation, you know, if I need to connect with the Amazon Mechanical Turk and have people talk and evaluate, you know, I don't want to have to spend so much time focused on building the UI of this tool or dealing with the engineering of connecting with Amazon Mechanical Turk and pairing humans together. Uh, So we abstract a lot of that away from you. And one way we do that is uh, by treating all things in, in in the world as agents. So whether you're a data set or a human talking to it on Mechanical Turk or a human talking to it at your local keyboard or a AI agent, everything is an agent. So we treat them all the same, and this gives us really nice abstractions to work with so that you know, we can sort of plug in an AI model in place of a human or plug a human in place of a model really easily. Parlay makes available a wide set of data sets through its API. How does Parlay use these different data sets? Yeah, we have over 100 data sets in Parlay. Some of them are from our group. Some of them are from external groups. And so one of the things we, we really focus on as a first-class feature in Parlay is if I want to train an AI agent that uh, exhibits multiple behaviors, I'm going to train on multiple data sets at the same time. Uh, so you, it's really easy to just sort of say, okay, give me data set A, data set B, data set C, and start training all three of them at the same time and get a model that can do all three of these behaviors. Uh, so that's sort of first-class functionality within, within Parlay. You know, when, when we were talking earlier about having a model that exhibited this sort of consistent personality, empathy, and, and knowledge, we did this with this sort of multitask training, as it's called, where we train on, on all different data sets. So if you're a new user or a new researcher who wants to come into dialogue, you can sort of take the stock of what are the data sets out there already and just start utilizing them um, as needed. And if you want to mix and match behaviors, hey, no problem. Describe the workflow for training a chatbot with Parlay. Yeah, so uh, we have a lot of, it's a very command line heavy utility or command line heavy platform. So if you want to train a new model, it can be as simple as calling the train model command from the command line. And then you just sort of say, all right, here are the tasks I want. Here's the model, uh, the, the sort of model that I want. What's the model architecture and things like this. And, you know, here's the learning rate and all the other neural network parameters. And you hit go and it starts training. Uh, A lot of researchers want to do more sophisticated things, maybe make a a custom architecture or make a custom data set. And it's really easy to just sort of 
build only the part of the data set that you need or build only the, you know, what's special about your model. So you might go and write a little bit of custom code utilizing, you know, our sort of abstract based classes and things like this. And you'll be off on your way training your special model. And if you don't want to mess with data, you don't have to mess with data. You can just use all the existing data sets. If you don't want to mess with modeling, you don't have to mess with modeling. You can just adjust the data and, and, and start training existing models already. With Parlay, you are training these chatbots, and you need to be able to have some understanding of what is a successful session and what is a failed session. So if I'm engaging in dialogue with a chatbot, I need to somehow give feedback to the system whether you know my conversation has been a successful one or a failure. How does that labeling workflow proceed in Parlay? There's a few different ways to go about it. As I said earlier, we tend to focus on open domain chatbots. Um, and one of the things about open domain chatbots is, is, you know, it can be hard to define what is a successful interaction, right? You know, as long as we talked and we enjoyed talking together, that can be viewed as a success. And so evaluation in these sort of open domain chatbots can become quite, quite difficult. To that end, we have a number of tools available to implement like existing architectures in, in, in the literature, different evaluation methods in the literature. One of the more classic ones is you might just have somebody chat with your model for a, a few minutes, uh, maybe 10 utterances. Um, and then you ask them, hey, on a one to five scale, how, how much did you like talking to, to your partner here? And then you would compare that against, you know, your previous version of your chatbot, or maybe even you know, compared to a human, how far away are you from human performance? And if you wanted to do that, you don't have to write any code whatsoever. One of the neat things that we've developed uh, in the past year is this thing called acute eval, which is actually an even more efficient way of doing this. So the problem when you do these like sort of classical Likert scale on a, on a, on a scale of one to five, what's your opinion here? Is that if I don't evaluate two different models at the exact same time, well, then I'm having a different pool of, of people give their opinions. And so, you know, if I'm asking on a Tuesday night versus a Saturday morning, you know, there, there might be different people, people working and they might give systematically different ratings. So one thing we've developed is this tool called Acute Eval, which actually shows people pairs of conversations with, with the AI's highlighted different colors. So I'll show a conversation between human and a model on one side and the, and the model will be blue. And then on the other side of the screen, I'll show a conversation between a human and a different model and that model will be red. And I'll say, hey, which of these two speakers would you rather talk to for a long conversation, red one or blue one? And you, know, you, you get their, their opinion. And if you do this enough, then you can actually get a, a pretty nice estimate of which model is better than the other. And this allows you to do like really nice fair comparisons with other, other people in the literature without having access to their model. I only need access to conversations they've had with people, right? And the other nice thing is that it's, it's quite a bit less expensive. It's less labor intensive uh, to do this because I don't need to have you sit there for 10 minutes and actually talk to the model. I just need to have you sit there and rate the model. Uh, is it better or worse than this other, than this other conversation? What's neat, though, is this technique works really well in self-chat mode. So originally, we tried, okay, let's have a model talk to a human, and then we'll have people rate that against another model. What we actually found works really well is we'll have 
a chatbot talk to itself, and then we'll compare that to another chatbot talking to itself. And if you do this enough times and get you know enough annotators and random pairs, then you can get a, a really strong estimate of the same performance. And we found that it correlates really well with the private, you know, with the traditional ways of doing human evaluation while being like 10x cheaper. So it turns out then, you know, you can sort of get a human evaluation of your model in like 30 minutes. Works really well. So you're describing there a kind of adversarial situation where you can have two uh, models that are playing against one another and and you're you're able to essentially fulfill the role of the human interlocutor with with an agent, if I understand correctly. Yeah, so what you do is you have you you'd have a model and you'd like seed it with a little bit of information or uh, just a random seed, you know, random.seed, right? And start talking. And then you have another model that reads what that part, you know, what its partner said and responds, right? And then you just have them go back and forth like 10 turns. And you can collect, you know, infinite of these, right? You can just start having your model, your computer crank out a bunch of these conversations. And historically, you know, the models I don't think were very good. They weren't very high performing, but in the past year or so, you know, we've seen this real leap for, forward in terms of how high quality these models can be, and they're actually able to carry a conversation. And so what you find is that when a model does, does really, really poorly, it'll like go off the rails, maybe start repeating itself. It might um, get stuck in a loop or just start ignoring its partner, but a good model won't do that. And you can really see this behavior in the self-chat mode. So let's talk a little bit more about the role of labeling. Tell me about how Mechanical Turk plays into the development of chat models. Yeah, with these neural network architectures that you that you train in the sort of end-to-end raw conversation in, you know, predicts predict the next utterance. Having examples of people displaying the information that you need is really important. So for instance, when we wanted to teach this model to be knowledgeable, we set up, the, it's called a Wizard of Oz type experiment, where you have one person sit in and pretend to be the AI that you want trained. So you give them a user interface. And so for this knowledge one, which we called the Wizard of Wikipedia, we gave these Mechanical Turk users access to a, a search engine over Wikipedia. And so while they were having a conversation with a person, we would be searching Wikipedia, hey, here's some, here's some information that might be relevant to this, to this conversation. If you're going to use this information, will you select that information and, and you know, click, I'm going to use this sentence from Wikipedia and integrate it into my reply, and then write your reply. So now what we have is a whole bunch of examples of humans talking to other humans, integrating knowledge into the conversation, and we have a grounding of what it is that they were reading while they were, while they were answering this other person. So then we have examples of, of how to read Wikipedia while you're talking to somebody and answer that, you know, answer their questions intelligently. So, you know, that's just one example, but we'll do all sorts of things like this. Like for persona chat, for this consistent personality, we had people assign them these sort of random personalities and ask them to role play as this personality. 
So uh, you'll have, say, um, I'm a basketball lover from Michigan, and uh, my my favorite artist is Prince, right? And then say, all right, I need you to role play somebody who is like that. And then we get is a data set of people having conversations about themselves while having this sort of background information about them. So when we can sort of build these UIs really quickly to collect these annotations, collect these examples of behavior, it becomes quite quite interesting and quite easy in order to just integrate this information into the chatbot while it's talking with you. There's a term, continual learning, that I'd like you to explain. Can you explain what continual learning means? Yeah, continual learning is the idea that a model should be always learning or an AI agent should be always learning as it continues to talk to people. So the way uh, a lot of AIs, a lot of machine learning works these days is I'll have a data set on disk and I'll go and, you know, I'll have my, my GPUs process that data and process the neural network and it'll learn all this data. And I'll, at the end, I'll end up with a, a model that can, you know, do whatever behavior that I trained it to do. Awesome. Now, when I go to deploy a chatbot, you know, I want this model to, to be continuously learning from its experiences. You know, that data set is old, it's stale. It was collected at some point in the past. As new things happen, you want the, the model to, to learn and respond to that. You know, when the model, you know, when this episode comes out and we say, oh, there's a, there's a, a new interview about Parlay, you know, you don't want to have to go and train the model from scratch in order to see and, and understand how people are conversing about, you know, this new piece of software parlay. Rather, instead, you want them to be, you know, as you chat with them, integrating this new information, adding it to their knowledge base, learning by example from, from talking, just like a human does. Tell me some of the important traits of a successful chatbot. What should a chatbot be able to do? Let's just re-level set the conversation around the, the basics of a chatbot. Well, at the core level, you know, a chatbot should be able to talk with you. You know, whether that's you're messaging it with on instant messenger of some sort, or whether you're, you know, maybe talking to it and it has speech recognition and things like this, you know, you should be able to talk to the model. You should be able to understand what you're saying and respond appropriately, perhaps performing some sort of action for you, like like booking a, a calendar entry while it's doing this. But you expect it to to talk back with you, right? It should it should respond. And there's a, a distinction we can draw between the dialogue systems of the past that were structured and had this task orientation. There's a newer way of doing things that is a deeply trained end-to-end system, how do these two types of training models compare on the requirements needed for a chatbot? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is around where where the advances have come um, in AI and NLP and natural language processing over the past couple of years. What, what we've really seen is leaps and bounds in these sort of end-to-end networks. So when I say we're focused on an open domain chatbot, what I really mean is, you know, I want a chatbot that can talk about these things and I'm gonna train it in an end-to-end fashion. Uh, But that's not to say that you couldn't say train a task-oriented model in this sort of fashion as well. 
I think what's interesting is that this sort of traditional way of doing task-oriented dialogue, where you have some sort of dialogue state that you're that you're keeping track of and you're trying to you know, explicitly model in, in, in symbols, what is this other person thinking and what is it that they want from me is that you have a really hard time with these sort of open-ended requests or, or requests that you haven't seen before. So if I haven't ever seen somebody talk about that symbol, maybe I'm going to have, have trouble, you know, producing that symbol or even thinking out of the blue, like what's that symbol. But when you do these end-to-end models, you're you're really treating these things as as um, continuous representations, right? So you're removing the aspect of symbols here, and you're just saying, okay, I want you to think about this and and, and process it, and it 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 learns what is the relationship between English words, how do I construct the sentence, how do I respond appropriately, uh, and it learns these things. And so what you're really seeing is a is a difference from okay, let's update and keep track of, of symbols to let's let it all be hidden in the, infor- in the information of the model. So let it all be latent. Let's let it learn from scratch what it needs to do. And uh, is there any difficulty in maintaining the deeply trained models? It sounds like it would be harder to understand what is actually going on in the training process and, and how those models are coming to fruition is it harder to maintain a deeply trained end-to-end system rather than a highly structured system? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it requires a different way of thinking about it. Rather than thinking about, okay, at this point in time, you know, this is what the state looked like. And so I can reason on you know, what's the next set of states that it will go to. Um, that's sort of the traditional way of, of thinking about it. And I think when you when you have to start to maintain these end-to-end models, you have to start to think about, okay, what are the aspects of my training data? What has the model seen people do before? Because it's gonna it's gonna learn to exhibit that behavior. So if you start seeing it misbehave and and say, guess that somebody wanted a book instead of a movie, or you know, respond about the wrong topic, you have to start to look, okay, where are my training data? Did it where there are mistakes like this, where somebody confused a book for a movie or somebody, you know, changed topics rapidly. And you have to start to think, okay, how can we fix the data or how can we adjust the data or how can we augment the data in order to to get around these, these issues with it? You also, I think, exhibit, you know, these models exhibit failure cases, like they often tend to repeat themselves and get stuck. And so then you start to say, okay, well, what is it about my architecture or what is it about my information that's causing this thing to get stuck on a loop? And you start looking for, okay, how do I teach it not to do this? So it becomes a different sort of debugging rather than sort of setting a breakpoint and saying, okay, well, what happens next as it transitions from this state to that state? You have to start to say, okay, where am I seeing these issues in my data? Or you know, why is my architecture have this sort of repetition bias or something like this. Um, and you start solving the problems in that way. I'd like to talk more about how to use models that are built with Parlay. So there are some pre-trained models that come with Parlay. Can you explain what a pre-trained model is and uh, an example of how you would use that? Yeah. So pre-training is this idea that I'm going to 
take this neural network, perhaps it's very large and perhaps it's uh, very expensive to train, but I'm going to train it on all this data ahead of time. And I'm going to do that exactly once. Then I'll have these, these sort of pre-trained weights initialized. And I can then fine tune the model to exhibit very specialized behaviors. So I can say, start with a very generic chatbot that has just seen a lot of a lot of text of people chatting about pretty much anything. And then if I wanna teach it empathy, then I'll spend a, just a little bit of time um, showing the model examples of how to be empathetic. Or if I want to you know, train this model to book calendars, I'll show it just a, a, a few examples, maybe a, a couple hundred or a thousand, maybe more if you have them, but I'll just show it those, those, those few hundred examples of, of that behavior. And I'll spend very little time, both in compute and in, in walk clock time, actually teaching it this specific behavior. The thing about pre-training is it can be very expensive to do the pre-training, but very, very cheap to do the fine-tuning. So you may only need access to a GPU for eight hours or something to, to sort of specialize the model for this behavior. So we release a bunch of pre-trained models that, that we've trained that exhibit, you know, have these sort of general properties that have seen a lot of text. Uh, and this makes it really easy to sort of start and, and focus on just the behavior that you want to exhibit. And you don't have to spend nearly as many computational resources to obtain, obtain that model. And we, we've released oh, dozens of, of pre-trained models from different research papers or ones that are, are really good starting points for all different types of tasks. Parlay also contains reference models. What is a reference model? So what we mean by reference model is models that are likely to be compared against in a scientific setting. So if I'm if I'm developing a if I have a great research idea and I want to I want to adjust the model and say okay I'm going to give it access to this extra information or I'm going to add this extra little neural net component over here I'm going to need to compare against the baseline right and so that baseline is usually going to be something standard in the literature or it's going to be something that lots of people have tried before they know how it behaves um, or it's going to be something that's just like simple and very close closely aligned. So we have implemented a, quite a few reference models of existing things, you know, the common, the common implementations that, that you'll want to compare against if you're developing a new research chatbot. For a lot of people, they don't necessarily do want to focus on, on a research chatbot. And so they, they might also just want to use these models off the shelf. So if you're just sort of looking to say, okay, give me, give me one of these awesome neural nets that exist today, uh, you don't have to implement it any of that yourself, we've implemented that already. Um, and you can just sort of import that and, and refer to it and use it. Is it useful to build multiple models or to use multiple models and compose them together into some kind of higher level architecture? Absolutely. Absolutely. So earlier I was talking about how we have a model that can read Wikipedia while it's, while it's talking with you. The way this is actually implemented is we have a model that searches Wikipedia and finds relevant information for the current conversation. And then we have another, another model that, that learns to ingest whatever information was selected by that, other, by that first model. Um, so in that way, you, know, you can compose these two models uh, and sort of get this, this higher level behavior of reading Wikipedia by breaking it down into 
you know, a searcher and an ingester. So we have a lot of instances of, of composed models. The, the knowledge one there is one example, but another one is in, say, you might want a, a safety classifier that's going to make sure that your model isn't going to say something offensive to users. You know, you might want an extra, an extra backstop protecting your users. Uh, you might want to compose these models. So first you'll have your neural network that generates a response, and then you'll have a safety model on top of that that acts as a backstop and, and says, oh, actually, I don't think we want to say that here. So we have a lot of different ways of composing different models. Yeah, you can mix and match however your needs are. As you mentioned before, Parlay has been used for an experiment in making more empathetic chatbots. Can we talk about that example in more detail? How did you design a more empathetic chatbot using Parlay? Sure. So that was work done by my, my colleagues and an uh, intern that we had a couple summers ago. Elon Burrow was the, was the uh, research scientist leading that project. So the way they did it was they, they had people have conversations with each other, and they asked them to, to annotate and say, what do you think is the right emotional state to respond with? And then there were other cases. Uh, so they did that for a little bit. And then they had cases where, okay, I want you to jump in this conversation. I want you to respond in this particular way. So I want you to respond with anger, or I want you to respond with sadness, or I want you to respond with happiness. And then once you have examples of that behavior, you can sort of teach the model to uh, predict what's the, what's the right emotion here. And then uh, once you have that sort of prediction of the emotion, you can, you can teach it to generate a response with that specific emotion. So then you can sort of control the model in a few different ways. So you can sort of say, okay, now I never want you to respond angrily. I, that's not a behavior I think my chatbot should do. So if the model wants to uh, respond angrily, we're going to say, no, no, instead I want you to respond happily or sarcastically or something like this. So uh, they collected a bunch of these conversations, displaying these emotions, and then trained models to exhibit these emotions, uh, and then asked humans, hey, which of these, which of these models do you enjoy talking to more? And which of these models do you think displays more empathy? So the models that were trained to have this empathetic responses uh, exhibited more empathy and were more entertaining to talk to. You've mentioned this close integration with Mechanical Turk. Could we go a little bit deeper into that? Describe what the integration with Mechanical Turk gives you access to. Yeah, so a lot of people use Mechanical Turk for these sort of static tasks. You know, I want you to uh, find me the stop sign in this image. So then they'll upload this sort of static, you know, CSV file or whatever. You know, here's an image, draw me in, you know, I, I, I want you to find the stop sign. And the, the user will just load up that example and draw a box around the stop sign and then return, submit the work for, for review. This is really great. Mechanical Turk makes it really easy to, to do these sorts of annotations. Where things get really tricky is when things are dynamic. You know, so the thing about chatbots is I can't just evaluate by having a static conversation. Every time we converse, it's going to be slightly different, right? So we've really built tools for plugging in these models or, or collecting these conversations in a non-static setting where something's going to be responding to the user 
and it needs to integrate that information and and then return it back to the mechanical Turk user and, and show this show this next chat message or show this information to them. So that's what we've really made uh, fundamentally easy. The other tricky thing about Mechanical Turk is it sort of expects, oh, we've just got one user and they're they're assigned to this task. But with chatbots, what we really usually want, very often want, is two humans talking together. That's how we collect these data sets. So we've made it really easy to pair pair people together or even groups of people together so that you can form that sort of chat room with multiple multiple humans in it. And this can this can all happen on the back end of Parlay. And you don't have to worry about the details of oh queuing people up to be matched into into together or things like this. Give me more of a description for the software architecture around training and deploying a model that would be used with Parlay. What are the bounds, like the 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 bounds around Parlay, and where does it get more into the the machine learning frameworks like TensorFlow or or PyTorch? Yeah, so at the end of the day, a lot of these agents will boil down to you know a bunch of PyTorch code running. Uh, what Parlay really makes it easy to do is it facilitates you know getting the data into into that model, formatting it in the exact right way doing sort of information search around that response. So, you know, once, just because you have a neural network doesn't mean that it's going to respond correctly. So maybe you need to do some augmentation, you know, how do you turn that output of that neural network back into text that a human can, can receive and reply? All of that is things that we've abstracted into, into this notion of an agent. Um, and so when you're working on, on a neural net, all you have to do is focus on the neural net part and all that information of like bringing it together, formatting it into, into the way that the, mod, that the neural network expects as input, turning that output back into text. This is all sort of abstracted away. One of the really interesting things is that um, most machine learning problems are, are, also, are, are sort of static. So say I'm doing machine translation, you know, I have a French sentence in and I have an English sentence out. And so every example is independent of all the other examples. With dialogue, there's actually a multi-turn conversation part of it. So one of the tricky things is uh, in order to like fully utilize GPUs, you need to do batching and group up multiple examples that the, that the GPU can see at all the same time. And this turns out to be really tricky to do in dialogue because Different conversations are different lengths. So you might be finished up with one conversation and just beginning another conversation. But we'll automatically do that batching for you. Um, and hand, you know, so you, all you have to do is really hand it, handle examples. And then once you have a neural network, you want to deploy it. Now, because we have these abstractions of you know, text in, text out, um, we can sort of treat your model as a black box and use it, deploy it, say to Mechanical Turk or, or to a chat service of some sort, like Messenger, and just input the text to the model and handle, and it produces a response and we'll handle delegating, oh, okay, this, this conversation, we're talking to this user and so you need to, here's your conversation history. But over here at the same time, uh, you're having another conversation and we'll keep track of that. And so, you know, make sure that your model is only seeing the, the conversations that it's replying to right now. 
How have companies outside of Facebook used Parlay? So we've had a, a, a lot of contributors and a lot of participants. I think we've had over 5,000, 6,000 forks of, of Parlay at some point, maybe only 1,000, but we've had a lot of different people take Parlay and extend it for, for whatever their needs are. A lot of those people are often university researchers. Sometimes those people are um, different, different companies. One thing that, that stands out to me is we held a contest uh, a few a few years ago for this conversational AI contest where we were we were first this is back in the early days when we were just experimenting with these consistent personalities and we had a contest where you could develop different chatbots and, and parlay and we would have them all ranked in a giant competition to say all right who can build the most entertaining chatbot with this with this data and hugging face was one of the top participants of that com- that competition and this was back in the day when they were focused on building chatbots. So at that time, you know, one of the things they were doing was using Parlay to 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 build dialogue systems. Um, that was a couple years years ago now. Since then, I you know I have seen other companies use Parlay in ways I didn't expect. Since we released this this model Blenderbot, we've gotten a lot of interest from people looking to to use our models and use our our framework in order to build specialized chatbots. What are the goals with the future of Parlay? What are the gaps in implementation that you'd like to shore up in the near future? I think we're always looking to advance the state of the art, both in uh, machine learning and in and in, in chatbot training, right? So we're always looking to make this to make this easier to do. And we're always looking to make things sort of just work for you. So if you wanted to specialize a chatbot, you know, it should be a very short command for you to sort of take one of these existing pre-trained models out of the box and train train a new one and fine-tune it for the specialized behavior. But the neural the neural nets of today may not be the neural nets of tomorrow, right? So we want to remain flexible in sort of what what are the different behaviors that we approach uh, that we that we support and especially what do we support out of the box? Um, it's just sort of keeping up with that. I think. There's also always advancements in in terms of how do you scale these things. We've watched the size of these neural nets increase from a couple million parameters up to billions of of parameters over the past couple of years. Um, And so there's been a lot of engineering that's had to be done uh, on doing this. But I don't see that, that curve stopping anytime soon. So, you know, I think in the next couple of years, somebody's going to be training a, uh, trillion parameter neural network. And so, you know, how do we keep up with the engineering that's necessary for that sort of huge scale? These are these are always things that are on my mind. Flexibility, future-proofing, um, and, and scaling. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. So, first of all, explain why you would want more and more and more parameters. And, and second of all, why is that hard to scale up the framework for? Yeah, so um, we've, we've been exhibiting um, a really amazing trend in, in natural language processing where these high parameter neural networks are learning faster, they're learning better, and they're exhibiting behaviors that their smaller counterparts aren't exhibiting. Um, so sometimes you find that just by going bigger and throwing more compute at it, 
the the end result is is so much more than you would have expected necessarily. And furthermore, uh, where there's this interesting trend that's happening in the literature now, where as you scale, the thing it actually learns more efficiently. Um, so if you have a fixed compute budget, and you know I'm going to spend X credits on AWS or on on Google Cloud, then it actually turns out the most efficient thing you can do is train the biggest model that you can with with that compute and train it for less time. This is a, as opposed to the the sort of old idea, which was, all right, let's let's train a reasonable size model for as long as we can. So as we're scaling, we're, we're finding these sort of uh, amazing cost efficiencies and these amazing behaviors that are emerging. What becomes tricky is you're sort of bound by the computers that you have, right? So, you know, how do you, how do you learn these neural networks that no longer fit in memory? These days, the, the, the biggest bound is often GPU memory and how big are the pieces of hardware, you know, these GPUs that you have access to. And at a certain point, you start having to say, okay, I've only got 16 gigs for a GPU here. That can only fit 8 billion parameters on it. What do I, I want to do when I got to go bigger than that? So you have to start saying, okay, let me, let me split this up um, across multiple GPUs. And then you have communication issues, right? So um, now we have to synchronize uh, state across all these GPUs or, or split up the data in different ways. And it becomes really complicated to do this efficiently and retain that speed that you need. Okay. Well, Stephen, is there anything else you'd like to add about Parlay? Yeah. I mean, come join us. Come check out Parlay. We've got, we've got great tutorials, uh, quick starts. You can, you can be chatting with a, a model or training your own in just a few minutes. We've got integration with Google Colab, so you don't even need access to, to GPUs yourself. You can just sort of start out of the box. And we're, we're open to pull requests. So come join us and, and make the future dialogue better. All right, Stephen. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me.